When I was younger, I played football, a lot younger, when I was made out of rubber and magic. And um, I think everybody who plays football should be made out of rubber and magic. But I attended this camp at the University of McMaster, and I was really nervous. There was a lot of scouts from the various universities there, and I knew I was being watched, and I was very nervous and wanted to perform. And what they did, I was a running back, and what they did was they'd let us go in for 10 plays at a time, and you'd go in for your 10 plays, and, uh, they, and as you were running 10 plays, everybody's clipboards came out, you're being judged and scrutinized, you know, very, you know, uh, it, really intensely. And so I was so nervous that when they called my number, I ran out and I forgot to buckle up my shoulder pads. And uh, we had those really short jerseys, like kind of up in, so my, my pads were kind of, but I didn't, I, I didn't notice, I was just so nervous. And I went in and they called my number and I, and I took that hand off and I ran through the line and that linebacker came and met me. And instead of my uh, equipment doing its job of protecting me, it all kind of shifted up into my neck and I still go to chiropractor today. Uh, <laughs> And I, if I had to trace it back to one moment, and if you, if you play football, it's a bit like getting in a car accident every 24 seconds. But if I had to go back to one moment, that would probably be the moment uh, where things kind of went awry in my neck and in my shoulder. But, you know, in the heat of battle, that's the wrong time to be putting your equipment on. This morning, we get to the tail end of Paul's letter. He's in Ephesians 6. It's a very familiar passage about putting on the armor of God. He's taken us through a really significant letter uh, speaking about the, the grace of God. And uh, now we get to the end, and he's talking about how we stand in that grace of God. Uh, and he's talking about spiritual warfare. It's not something that often we'll talk about or think about. He talks about the devil. The devil is not something, that, something that's often preached about or talked about. And, uh, but this morning, as we come to chapter 6, we're going to see that Paul gives us a picture of going into the heat of battle, uh, but prepared in such a way. And he gives us a metaphor uh, using armor, but we're going to look at this and we're going to see the goodness of God's grace through this. So just some quick context for you before I read Ephesians 6. And that's that in these first three chapters, Paul says that the Father planned your redemption by grace, the Son accomplished your redemption by grace, and the Spirit is applying your redemption by grace. And because of that huge tidal wave of God's initiative on your behalf, the grace of Christ goes further than you'd go. And it unites more deeply than you ever would because Christ starts building his church with, with, with the power of his rescuing grace. This is how this letter begins. And then the letter shifts from what the grace of God is and what the gospel is to what the grace of God actually does and what the gospel does. But when that shift happens in chapter 4, we don't check Jesus at the door. We don't check grace at the door. We don't say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did. We'll take it from here now. And so as that shift takes place, we recognize that as our hearts grasp God's grace, the desire for our sin continually decreases. And the desire for our Savior continually increases. And we start to see this shift take place in uh, chapters 4 and 5 where Christ justified us in grace so that God could be our Father. And now, church, Christ is sanctifying you by grace so that you want to imitate your Father. You see, it's not by your willpower, it's by God's gracious power. And so, as this whole letter moves, and we get to the armor of God, which I'm about to read, where Paul says stand, he starts out by saying, believe and rest in the grace of the gospel. 
live in the power of the grace of the gospel. And now you must stand, because you're in a massive battle every single day, and you must stand now in the grace and the implications of what Christ did at that cross, the implications of the gospel. And we come to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. So as we see at the tail end of his letter, we're to stand in the grace of the gospel. Stand in the grace that we're resting in. Stand in the grace that we're now living in. Stand in the grace of that rescuing work of Christ at the cross that has that reforming trajectory. Here's the sermon in a sentence. It's that God rescues us when we fall flat and reforms us so we can stand firm. So there's three things that I want us to look at from this passage that we read here. The first thing is, who are we standing against? Secondly, what are we standing against? And then thirdly, how do we stand? So who are we standing against? Well, it's not people. He's very clear. He says it's not flesh and blood. It's the devil. We don't like to talk about the devil. In fact, here in Kitchener-Waterloo, where we're kind of at the, uh, you know, the epicenter of academia and this kind of neck of the woods uh, of southern Ontario with our universities, to think about the spiritual realm and the spiritual world and spiritual warfare and the devil, for a lot of people it seems like, well, isn't that a little naive? I mean, should we really be talking about uh, the devil? Can't we talk about this in another way? Can't we just attribute everything to being a human problem or a sociological problem or a psychological problem or, or uh, an economic problem? I mean, can we attribute the problems in your newsfeed, the things that shock you week in and week out, week in and week out, the things that make your heart break and make you cry, the things that enrage you and make you angry, the evil that we see around us, can't we attribute it to other things? But Paul says we can't. Even though evil takes forms of greed and poverty and abuse and violence and war, right, and tragedy in every form, even though it takes those forms, uh, those things don't create the evil. The evil is deeper. It's more pervasive. And Paul gives us this by, by saying that our, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. Now, having said that, amen and amen to social justice. Amen and amen to looking to do justice and mercy in our city. Uh, to partner with organizations like we do as a church with, um, w- with uh, St. John's Kitchen. They do 
beautiful work in this city, feeding those who have been struck in, uh, with, by poverty and homelessness for a variety of reasons. And we aren't going to discriminate between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. We're just going to recognize that apart from the grace of Christ, we're the, deserve, we're the undeserving poor, and we're going to shower grace on them and care for them. So the St. John's Kitchen, they do great work in the city, and so we support them and we partner with them. So I'm not saying that uh, you know, all the problem is the devil. What I'm saying is pervasive underneath all of the problem of, of uh, the human condition is, Paul gives us, the powers of darkness and the devil. And we might say, well, can we not just uh, you know, talk about scientific causes and natural causes, and could there be a socioeconomic solution? And our culture, and maybe you're here and you're, you're, you don't have a Christian worldview, maybe you're here and you're searching or you're seeking, you're a little skeptic about, you know, the Christian faith, and you might th be thinking to yourself, is it naive, really, to talk about the devil, that there could be this, this power that's causing uh, all of the unrest in the world? But I, I mean, I even know that in my own lifetime, and I'm young, I'm, I'm 40 years old, and even in my own lifetime, I've seen so much evil in my short lifespan that I think that the idea that humans can fix the problem is getting old. I'd be willing to argue any day of the week a worldview that thinks that the human problem, that humans are going to solve the human problem. I think that's getting old. And I'm young. And maybe, and, and, and perhaps you'd say I'm being naive, but I'd be willing to argue that. I don't think we can, that, that we can just attribute everything with, um, with medical terms. And I'm not saying that there aren't medical problems. I'm just saying, and I think we have to be willing to say, is it possible, though, uh, that if I don't acknowledge that there could be another realm other than this realm of flesh and blood, uh, if I'm unwilling to acknowledge that, um, unlike every other culture other than the White West, who doesn't seem to have a problem believing in spiritual realm, uh, not just globally, but historically, all through history, am I willing to acknowledge that I might be narrow in that view? That I might have a degree of chronological snobbery to think that all cultures throughout all of history really haven't had a problem with the idea that there is a forces of darkness at work in the world. But in the White West, in my neighborhood, I've kind of think that everything can be attributed to socioeconomic or physiological you know, problems. I think I'd be willing to argue that. And, and scripturally, and, and obviously I'm a, I'm a Christian theist and my faith is in Christ alone, so obviously my bias is the Bible. But Paul seems to be saying there's something way deeper here. Yes, uh, there's a lot of factors that affect the evil in the world, but they're not creating the evil in the world. So that's who we're standing against. But what is it that exactly that we're standing against? So Paul gives, he says, here's who you're standing against. These principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's who we're dealing with here. Not people. We're called to love people, even our enemies. The Christian worldview is we love our enemies. We show grace and compassion and dignity to everybody who's not at this church, who disagrees with everything I say in this church. That's our posture, right? Our position is that we hold fast to the truths of God's word, and we're unapologetic about that. That's our position as Christians. But our posture is love and dignity and respect for everybody that disagrees with our position. So what is it that we're standing against? Well, we're standing against schemes. Kids, you've got your notes, and if you look down there, I threw a little... Uh, a couple sentences in there to help you, but in, in the Greek, the word schemes is uh, methodia, or methods. So what are the methods, if the devil is who we're dealing with, what are the methods that he's, that he's using? The, the word devil in the Greek is diabolos. It's actually a verb, so his name is a verb, which means to lie and to slander. 
Um, so we're dealing with a liar and a slanderer. And when we think about the devil, uh, particularly in 2016, uh, you know, modern culture, you think about head spinning and projectile vomit. You think about um, uh, the, the Walking Dead and and other kind of crazy uh, paranormal uh, you know movies that kind of come out to pick like really you know demonic gross stuff. But when you go to the scripture and when you go to how how the devil set all evil in motion in the first place, you find him lying. You don't find head spinning and you don't find possession. You find lies. So what we're dealing with is methods of a liar and when we go back to genesis 3 he's not possessing adam and eve he's lying to them and i don't know which theologian said at first but here's a beautiful way of stating what happened in genesis 3 he did not leave them with fang marks on their flesh but lies on their heart and that's what we find that the devil is doing uh, timothy keller who's one of my favorite teachers today he gives a beautiful picture like this of how the, these methods of the devil work these lies work he says you're familiar with the term heartstrings, you know, things tugging at your heartstrings. If you open up a piano and sing into that piano, I mean, if you can, if you can hit a note that's, that's uh, you know, none of us probably have perfect pitch, but if you can open a piano and, and sing a note, the note, the, the string that accompanies that note you're singing will vibrate. And all of our hearts have strings. We were born dead into our sin, Ephesians 2 says, and the devil has been whispering since genesis into the heart of humanity and everybody has different heartstrings that vibrate with different lies which result in different sin and manifest in different ways and create different problems and so your news feed looks the way that it does and so that your marriage struggles with the things that it does and my marriage struggles with the things that it does and your family struggles with the things that it does and your children and when you go to work and the, all of the struggles that we're in with our own sin and the lies that we, we, we uh, struggle with is because the devil, since the beginning, has been singing into the hearts of humans. And James says we're all deceived because of kind of what was in there that we were born into. And that's really what we're dealing with. We're dealing with, with these methods. And they, they've always formed in, in two things of temptation and accusation. But recognizing that all of us who are now saved by the grace of God, rescued by the scandalous, irreversible, no-strings-attached, bloody cross of Jesus Christ, who, in his perfect work, made it such that you and I walk out this church today with nothing left to do before God to gain his acceptance because everything is done in Christ. And so even though we enjoy that, that beautiful grace, because our status is righteous, in and of ourselves, we are sinners. And because we are sinners, that allows for us to have a great degree of humility for the people sitting on either side of you and on the row behind you and in front of you. Because if we forget that all of us have a propensity that we struggle with until the day that we are glorified, that our heartstrings vibrate to different lies, it's very easy to look at somebody who sins in a particular way for us to say, how could they do that? I can't believe it. If they were only as mature as I was and as sanctified as I was. I mean, if they, just, if they only had the spiritual strength and fortitude that I've come to have over my years of... But the devil, has a, he can sing into your heart a different lie and you, and you are going to need the grace of Christ just as much as that person. It gives us humility to recognize that all of us are in a struggle. That's why Paul uses the word struggle with this te the temptations and the accusations. And the temptation from the beginning has always been, did God really say that? 
Is that really what God meant? I mean, I've been pastoring for a really long time, and one of the things I'm amazed about in my own life, and in those that I've pastored, is how easy it is for us to go, when we want to do something, when our hearts have decided that we want something, and our souls are chasing after that thing that our hearts have already decided they want. And our minds are justifying what our souls are chasing because our hearts have already decided them. It's very easy for us to look at something very black and white in the Bible and be like, I'm not really sure that's what that means. I mean, I wonder if there's just another, maybe there's something we're missing in the Greek, you know. It's amazing to me how many Greek scholars there are in the body of Christ. You know, that are sure that's not what it means in the Greek. I mean, I'm not a Greek scholar, and you don't even need Greek to know, I don't even need Greek to know the things that I want to justify in my own life, in the moment that I'm kind of going down that path of temptation. And so te that temptation is rampant, obviously, in the church, because all of us are in the struggle. And if we weren't, Paul wouldn't have even ended with chapter 6. He would have just ended, you know, in chapter 4, and he wouldn't have talked about the warfare that we're in, or the wrestling that we're doing, or the armor that we need. He would have just said, you got Jesus, you got grace, pitter-patter, get out, or have a nice day. But he ends it with, with this, because we've got, we struggle with the temptation. The other thing is the accusation. And the accusation is um, when we do fall into sin and we, and we lose that struggle, the accusation is you went too far. Don't even bother going to church this Sunday. Because if you walk into KW Redeemer, all those other people are really righteous and holy. They're not sinners anymore. You are, obviously, because of what you did. But they're not. So what you should probably do is not go to church until you get your act together. Let me tell you something, church. That's, that's an incredible lie. I mean, it's just an incredible lie. But all of us have fallen prey to that, where we're like, I, can't, I don't even want to look the people in the church in the eye. And they may never even know what I did. They may never even you know, know what I did. But I, I just, uh, I, the accusation of the devil is you went too far. God just shredded your adoption papers. There's no turning back from this. You can't return. This is the accusation uh, that often comes to us. God can't restore you. You've used up grace. You abused the grace. Which is a hilarious term, because grace, by its very definition, is being abused, quote-unquote, the moment it's given out. Because it's undeserved. So if the grace is, if, if the grace is uh, deserved, it's not grace. And ironically, none of us deserve it. So the ground is level at the foot of the cross here. Where now we can relate to one another with great compassion. Where hopefully would the Lord do a beautiful work in Cato Redeemer that year after year after year, this is a culture um, of grace and compassion because we know how badly we actually need it. So that someone can say, can I have a coffee with you? And they can vomit their sin all over that, you know, coffee table. And um, you can be like, wow, I, let me pray for you. I love you. This is horrible. I'm not talking about antinomianism where sin doesn't matter. It matters a really big deal. If you have a very high view of God's law, which is that it's perfection, you have a very high view of, 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 uh, of sin. But if I have a very low view of God's law, like I can actually pull it off because I'm so righteous and I'm not a sinner anymore, then I'm always going to downplay my sin. I'm not going to confess my sin. I'm going to rebrand. I'm not going to repent. And Paul says you've got a liar that is coming after you and he, he has got methods of... Of, uh, of pushing you uh, away from Christ. And when I say pushing you away from Christ, I want to be clear about something. When, Christ, when, when you are in Christ's grasp, he doesn't let you go. So this isn't a conversation about Jesus saying they went too far and now I can't save them. Save them. This is a conversation about us, the church, struggling and, and being in, in unnecessary suffering and pain and hurt and isolation. 
as a result of not falling on the grace of Christ and, and giving into the, the temptations of sin or the accusation that once we've done it, we can't go back. Corey Ten Boom uh, wrote this, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And Spurgeon writes, Once God pardons a man, there is no end to that pardon. And he's just beautifully lifting from what Paul wrote. And uh, so there's obviously there's two errors here that we can fall into when it comes to spiritual warfare. And the one error is everything's the devil and nothing's the devil. And the everything's the devil. I remember Susan was at a conference one time years ago in a church and there was a lady in the bathroom. She got locked in the stall and she was shouting out from the stall. And, and uh, we were in the states, southern states, and she's shouting out, the devil's just trying to steal my joy. He's just, the devil's just trying to keep me from hearing the word of God. And the devil's just trying to, it's like, I, I mean, I'm not the brightest, you know, guy, but I'm thinking the devil's probably got more important things to do than hang out in ladies' bathrooms and lock women in stalls so they're late for the church service. It's just a thought. So, you know, everything's not the devil. Uh, you know, quick, shut the TV off. The demons are going to invade the house. Well, I don't know. Everything is not the devil. On the other side of the ditch, of course, is that nothing's the devil. I've been in Africa, and I'm not going to bother getting into the stories now, but I heard some stories and saw some things, and uh, I was just like, wow, the devil is for real, for real. When I was in some crazy villages and saw a, a witch doctor dancing around as one, and I'm, I'm just like, it's, there's things that can make the hair stand on the back of your neck, and I've been in those scenarios. And um, So we can make two errors. We can say everything's the devil, and we can say nothing's the devil. Um, but we don't want to do that because in verse 12, Paul uses the word wrestle. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. And so the picture here is grappling, wrestling, on the ground, hand-to-hand combat. So Paul's saying, like, you personally, all of us, are in a battle with these, the lies and, and, and the temptations. So we don't want to underestimate that. But we also, we don't want to overestimate his power because Paul, right in his next breath in verse 13, he says, Be strong in the Lord and his power of his might, that you may be able to stand. And when Paul uses that word, that you may be able to stand, that's actually, he's wanting to invoke confidence. So when we read that you might be able to, in English it seems like, well, maybe you can stand. Maybe, right? That's how we kind of, but that you may be able to, it would be like saying, lift up the small child, that they might be able to flick the light on. Well, if you were to word it that way, it, you're, it's clear that because of your power and your ability and everything that you're doing, lifting the child, a child can clearly do this. So when Paul says that you may be able to, he's actually invoking in the church saying, I know you struggle with sin. I know you even fail in your sin. I know you're in the struggles, but listen, you can stand. This is the grace that saved you. I'm going all the way back to chapter one. This is why we have to understand in the context of the whole letter. Otherwise, we can um, kind of fall on either, either ditch of those struggles. And so that's the, the encouragement. So finally, let's move to the final thing, which is, which is how do we stand? If we're standing against this these, these spiritual forces, and if, if it comes to us in the form of lies or temptations, really, tempta- I'll just sum up the temptation. A temptation to live a me-first life. Me first. That can manifest in, there's a there's hundred people in here, a hundred different ways to live a me-first life so that you end up breaking God's law. Me-first means you don't worship God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Because you're, you're manipulating your life so that you're worshiping yourself with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Which results in not loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Because you're living the me first life because you've given into the lives of the temptations in whatever form they came in. So it's not possible to love your neighbor. Right? Your spouse, your wife, your kids, the person at work, the person that's driving you crazy. 
whoever, that, whoever your neighbor is, it's not possible to love them because you're loving yourself first. Because you've become, you've become the pinnacle of your own life. And so, how do we stand against all this? Well, we stand in God's power, not in our willpower. We're standing in the power of God's grace, not the power of our sweat. And we're standing in the struggle, and we're standing, in, we're standing with confidence that even though the lies are coming that saying God is not with you, he's forgotten about you, you wouldn't be dealing with this still if God was good or real. I mean, the only reason you're still battling and struggling with this is because God isn't real. I mean, if God really was real and, didn't, and really did care, you wouldn't be going through this. Your family wouldn't be going through this. Your marriage wouldn't be in this situation. Your kids wouldn't be going. Like, that's the lie. Throughout the whole Bible, it's always started with, did God say? Let's question God's nature. Hey, God's holding out on you. That's from Genesis 3, from the beginning. The lie has always been, God is not as good as he is putting out that he is. So you should probably go and get for yourself the thing that God clearly is not interested in giving you. And so, how do we stand in that? How do we stand in the lie that says, you're too far gone, your sin's too far gone? How do we stand in that? We stand knowing that though we are worse than we would care to admit we are, we're more loved than is possibly imaginable, we stand in the gospel of God's grace, and we stand realizing, you know what? Even though my substance is sinful, even though I am wrestling with these thoughts, and all hell is literally breaking loose, which is the, which is the picture of Ephesians 6. It's hell breaking loose. So it's like, what's your, what are you going to look like when hell is breaking loose? Okay? And he says, I'm standing in the middle of this, realizing even though my substance is totally sinful, my status is irreversibly righteous. I mean, God... I don't know how, but he has me. He's carrying me through this. The Bible does not present a God who promises to eradicate your life of suffering. The, God, the Bible presents a God who promises to save you through suffering. We're in this spiritual battle. The world is broken. Our bodies are broken. Everything is broken. And we have a God who says, I am with you, and I will save you, and I will pull you through all of this brokenness. That's my promise. But the lie of the devil is he wants to twist that and be like, well, no, 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 no. If God actually loved you, none of this struggling and none of this stuff would be here, which is like the devil's smokescreen, right? So let's not pay attention to any of the stuff that I've lit on fire in your life. Let's just point at, uh, you know, shine a spotlight and say, what's God doing about it? And let's also have you forget that we're living life in Act 3 and Act 4 is actually coming where he, where, where he restores everything. This is what the picture is. So that's why in verse 14 he says, Stand therefore having buckled. You're standing, in a, you're standing in something that's already done. You're standing in a battle that's already going on. When he says stand therefore, that's a single past action. It's complete. It's already done in Christ. This is the grace of Christ. So as you, as you look at the, at the armor, they're all metaphors for the grace that Paul is saying, this is objectively true. You need it to be experientially true. The belt of truth, right? It's the foundation. It's like, it's like first century Under Armour, okay? It's like a leather tunic. It wasn't a belt like what I'm wearing. It was like a neck to, you know, knee, you know, leather. And the, the belt of truth, Christ is our truth. Christ is the truth. He said, I am the truth about the Father. I'm the truth about what God's doing in the world. I'm the truth about what he's going to do with the world. He's the truth. He's the foundation in which everything else is, is buckled together and, and fastened to. So 
we internalize the grace of Christ. The breastplate of righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness, Christ is our righteousness. And so the scripture says that he took him who, you know, was not sin and made him sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is handed right to us. It's not in and of ourselves. It's Christ, and we're united to him. And the amazing thing about grace is God only ever sees us as righteous. But if you look in the mirror, you're not righteous in and of yourself. If that were true, we'd get, which, which gets us to the next thing. I won't get ahead of myself, but I'll get to that in a minute in terms of how it is Christ's righteousness handed to us. He says our, our, we've got the shoes of peace. And, and the Roman boot, the, they called it the caliga, they're not like for running. These, these boots that Paul's describing, the, 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 the Roman boots that they used at the time when Paul would have been writing this, they had massive spikes on the bottom of them. You just dug your heels in and you stood there behind the shield. So this isn't a picture of a soldier, you know, running through a battlefield. This is a picture of a guy who's dug his heels in and he's not going anywhere. And so the gospel is that. It's the grace of Christ that enables for us to just dig our heels in and, and not be moved when all hell is breaking loose uh, in our life. It, it's a picture of someone who's firmly planted. So we've got the peace with God because of what Christ did and we have the peace of God but again, these are objective truths that Paul's been talking about for five chapters, and he's saying, you've got to get that objective truth of grace experientially in your heart. So that day to day, this grace that we say we celebrate and we believe in, it's actually changing us. It's causing us to dig our heels in. It's causing us to not move. Then he says the shield of faith, which of course, Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. The Roman shield was not like this little thing that you kind of slung on your arm and you ran around with like Captain America. The Roman shield was wider than a man, and you stuck the thing in the ground, and you, you, you hid behind it. And if you've ever seen, you know, Gladiator from 2000, all of those fiery darts that they would shoot, they'd all stick in the shields. Those things look like smoking porcupines. That's a picture of you and me. We don't stand there like Captain America, like, ha, 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 I'm righteous. Man, you are behind something, hiding behind something, heels dug in, not moving, being like, I'm with Jesus. This is the picture. Right? You and I aren't the hero. We just like, we stick our heels in, we put the shield down, we hunker down behind it, and we're very, very confident. Very confident. This is the picture of the shield. And so this is why I'm saying to you, because we need this shield of faith, this is, I always say this at Redeemer, we're righteous in Christ, but we're sinners in ourselves. And when you talk that way, it always bothers people. And I've had many people, and many more will come to me and say, well, are we still sinners? Yes. If you weren't a sinner, you wouldn't need a shield. The reason you need a shield is because you're very flammable. You're a flaming sinner on your own. Flaming sinner. And so you need the if you, you don't need a shield if you're not a sinner. But Paul, I'm the righteousness of Christ. Yes. Yes, you are. And God only knows you as righteous because of the grace of Christ. But it's Christ. This preacher needs a shield. I don't get to know, I don't be like put on all the armor, but be like, I don't need a shield because I'm righteous now. Get behind the shield. You're a flaming sinner. And the devil knows what makes you, you know, you're not, he knows how to make you catch on fire. And what's going to make you, you know, burst into flames isn't going to make the person on this side burst into flames. So we, 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 this is, again, why we can live with compassion in the church, that when somebody does burst into flames, rather than standing there and watching them burn, and be like, well, I just can't believe they're as not as sanctified as I am. I can't believe they burst into flames. Jump on the brother. Roll them, on the, roll them around in the grace of Christ. Take them for a coffee. Give them Jesus. 
Right? They don't have to live in their sin. I'm not advocating antinomianism. I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. It matters. It kills us. But this is why we have a shield. We hide behind it. We stick that thing in the ground. I'm with Christ. I'm with him. Desperate for him. And it was because Paul had such a revelation of this that he was able to be very transparent in Romans 7 about how he still catches on fire. Romans 7, the thing I'm supposed to do, I don't do. The thing I'm not supposed to do, that's the thing I'm... He's like, you know, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but uh, and the fiery darts are... Paul is writing the Apostle Paul about how the flaming darts are going in and inflaming him, inflaming his sin. Romans 5, Paul says, I didn't even know what sin was until the law came along. The law showed me, oh my gosh, and I'm such a sinner. This is Paul. And then in 1 Timothy uh, 1.15, when he says, I am the chief of sinners... That's present tense vocabulary. You don't even need Greek to understand that. But if you need the Greek, in the Greek, it's the past, it's a present tense. It's, I am presently the chief of sinners. Why does Paul say that when he's, he's, his identity is not that he's a sinner? His identity is that he's in Christ. His identity is not that he's a sinner. His identity is that he's a saint. But he knows he's flammable. So there's a radical humility in Paul. That allows for there to be a radical humility in you and I. To be like, look, I need to hide behind the shield as much as you, bro. Let's go for coffee and let's pray together and let's stand together for this massive struggle that you're in, these doubts, these things you're, you're going through. You know, this church is not the gathering of the good. This is the, we're the gathering of the forgiven. Right? Give it enough time. Everybody in this whole church will disappoint you, starting with this preacher. Spend a day with me. I'll disappoint you. Right? Hang out with me for a day. You'll find out how much of a sinner I am. I can't go a day without a, without a thought or word or deed demonstrating that I don't love God more than anything and love you more than anything. Can't do it. Never did it. Tomorrow doesn't look good either. And I'm not advocating sin. I hate that I do it. I hate it. I'm working on it by God's grace. But I'm going to die a real sinner needing a real Savior. And when I stand before Christ and God's like, what's up with I'm like, I'm with him. I am with him. That's the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. How are you kids doing? I'm like, I want the kids in for the sermon, and then every time the kids are in, it's like the longest sermons I preach. I'm looking down at the, I'm looking down at the time. I'm at 34 minutes. People are like falling asleep. Okay, kids, I'm, the preacher's going long. I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to wrap this up. Sorry, kids. The kids are like, why did he have this in here? I thought this was going to be like 20 minutes. Kids, you need to know this. This is the armor of God that God's given you. This is his grace. Okay. So the helmet of salvation, Paul actually borrows this, this whole armor metaphor from Isaiah 59. If you read Isaiah 59, God puts on armor and God goes, into, to, uh, goes to war on injustice. So Paul is borrowing that here, but he, he puts it in a gospel context in the light of Christ. Because in Isaiah, salvation is something that God did, and here salvation is something that God gives. And so Paul is, uses this image of the helmet of salvation, and it's a confidence builder. When you put a helmet on, it's a confidence builder. When Isaiah was a little guy and he was playing football, we went and he, he, said, he said, Dad, is today the day I get my armor? I said, yep, today is the day you get your armor, buddy. And we went and we put on his equipment. And when I put the helmet on him, I said, now this helmet's going to protect you. And I started bonking him in the head. Bonk, 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 bonk. And at first he was like freaking out. Whoa, whoa. But then you could watch his eyes. And I didn't stop. I just kind of went bonk, 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 bonk. And as I was bonking him, bonking him, bonking him off the helmet, all of a sudden his eyes started changing. Because he's like, wait a minute. I'm actually okay in here. And you could literally see the shift in his little 10-year-old face from, oh my gosh, I'm going to die, to, I am Iron Man. You know, it's like it just went to this huge, no, I can do it, you know? It was amazing. 
And uh, it's a confidence builder. You put a, put a little helmet on a little five-year-old child, and what does that kid start doing? Their confidence goes to another level. They start running around. They're like they're protected. Hel- the helmet of salvation is the confidence builder for us it, when we're in the middle of the struggle, when the fiery darts are flying, when all hell is breaking loose in your life, in your marriage, in your body, with your family. It, the, the salvation is the confidence builder. It's because uh, when, when uh, Paul uses the term in Ephesians 2, going back a couple chapters, he says, by grace you've been saved, period, right? Saved. That is a perfect past tense participle. It means say, done and being done. So there's a confidence there. And so the sword of the Spirit is God's word. And Jesus, of course, is in the desert. And when the temptation comes to Christ, if Christ needed God's word, surely you and I need it. Why do, we, why do we read God's Word? Why are we to meditate on God's Word? Why are we to memorize God's Word? Why do we teach our children God's Word? It's not to get brownie points in heaven. It's not so God will say, you're a really good Christian. It's not so we can come to church and feel more sanctified than the person that hasn't opened their Bible in a month or a year. That's not why we read it. We read it to nourish and feed our souls because God's Word, that sword, which divides between the soul and the spirit and the bone and the marrow, it does that work of causing us to hate our sin and love our Savior because the Bible reads us. And so I'm going to close with this. Putting on the armor is to take what's objectively true and make it experientially through, true through prayer. And I'm going to close the sermon with that. Because Paul says at the end of all of this, praying at all times in the Spirit, it's through prayer. How do you put on the armor? How do you put on this metaphorical armor? It's prayer. It's getting before God. It's living our lives on our knees and saying, Oh God, I need your grace. That's the good news. The good news is that when it comes to standing firm, when all hell is breaking loose, Christ has a perfect record of standing firm. And he gave his record of standing firm to you and I. And so more and more as you and I are putting on the grace of Christ, we will instinctively act like a person who is loved and safe and secure in God, even when all the darts are flying around us. And so Jesus... As he came as a warrior, he didn't come to bring the sword of God's judgment. He came to bear it. He didn't come, uh, you know, he came and God's judgment fell on him so that God's grace could fall on us. And so God's grace rescues us when we fall flat, but it reforms us so we can stand firm. Let's pray.